Chapter 8, Shooting Day 3. If I were a manager, I'd fire you. The bulk of day three was scheduled at night. It would be Hanna's first acting day to take place at a music store and then a record store. Before that, we had some afternoon stuff planned. Mark and Carla at a pharmacy buying a pregnancy test, and Mark buying health food at a supermarket. A small montage of him turning his life around. Both would only take a few minutes, if only we had the locations. We technically had the supermarket. It was the one location with which Ingrid was successful at securing. It was a Jewish butchery in Brighton, and the pictures from the website didn't really indicate a solid-looking supermarket to me. It read more as a winery or something. Still, we had it approved, and it was all we had. I wondered if maybe we could shoot the pharmacy stuff at the butchery and get both of those done on another day where we already had Maria, so she didn't have to truck herself out to Brighton for a few minutes of shooting. I rescheduled those shots for day six, which was a full day of Carla and Mark material, so it seemed appropriate. What this meant was that no shooting took place between 2 p.m. on day 2 and 5 p.m. on day 3. Day 3 would be the one day Nina couldn't participate because of her work schedule, but she left me with carefully documented snacks and props, except for anything Jeff had to bring, which included a How the Grinch Stole Christmas record and a fake album from one of Mark's old bands. The Grinch record was written to be found by Carrie, which reminds her of how much she loved winter and snow days when she was a kid. In our downtime, J.R. fought to the death with his laptop, my Xbox, and my TV, struggling with the technical details of recording GTA V. I lent him as many HDMI cables and software licenses as I could. Fortunately, he was staying in a very technically enabled household. We grabbed lunch at Nick's Pizza in Westport, which was a location in Sexually Frank. I introduced him to the Charisse and Chips Calzone, a fattening favorite. He told me an incredible story about a trip to Vegas when he was 20 that's still financially impacting him to this day. That trip was just... no. In Abo, J.R. had a very villainous moment, where he stares down Abo and tells him why he hates him. In one of the takes, J.R. was possessed by his inner, over-the-top villain, delivering the line, You must look at me as cruel, heartless, even villainous. No. The delivery of that, no, was followed by a sneer, a head shake, and some shakiness in his vocal quality. It had Keith Sadik and me dying throughout the Abo shoot, and J.R. still laughs about it to this day. So when he says, that whole trip was just, no, it tickles me. J.R., John Hunt, and I rolled up to Mr. Music in Alston and fed the meter. From the store managers, of which there seemed to be a handful, we had vocal approval and one, yeah, sure, whatever, email. Their only request was that we shoot during business hours so that no one has to stay after. Usually stores want you to shoot after hours and want you to pay them to stay, but these guys were all hard, aging musicians who couldn't have cared less. They told us that college movies were shot in there all the time. Though I was grateful for their cooperation, one guy just wouldn't stop talking to Hana about this interactive art installation he wanted to do on the subway. When scouting for the location, the same guy talked endlessly to me about us putting his music in the film. Even though I politely and generously let him blab at me for a half hour in the past, he didn't recognize me from a hole in the wall. His skin was very hard. Hana thought he was a tree. Hana had worked an entire day before this shoot. I really, truly have nothing but nice things to say about Hana, and I even find her obsessions and annoyances to be pretty charming. I went on a big spiel earlier about how crew should be able to stop a take if the integrity of a shot collapses. Cast, on the other hand, shouldn't. Unlike the crew, they really don't have a sense of what's working in the scene and what's not, because they're unable to see the frame, hear the audio, or imagine the edit. A take with mistakes in it can still have a lot of usable moments, but a restless actor will want to start over and get it right from the top. Hana, inexperienced at acting, was quick to do that, not just from a performance perspective, but a technical perspective, especially as it related to her microphone. She was so constantly aware of her mic pack and microphone, interrupting takes to ask if it was showing. 
It was actually pretty hilarious, but not ideal when trying to stay on schedule. The second half of the music store scene had an unusual amount of flubs on both JR and Hana's part, and they started to feel guilty, especially JR, which made it worse. Still, after an hour of powering through, it was shot. John Hunt, who had gotten heavier since the Sexually Frank shoot, was growing more tired by all the standing. In the music store, he identified a fold-up piano stool for $30 that could be a portable seat wherever we shot. It also took up little space in the trunk. Aaron and Mike Moore stopped by the music store and video-blogged some, right as John was buying the stool. John is nothing if not a bargain hunter, so a $30 stool, Aaron reminded him, was no church fair price. John's physical comfort made it a worthy purchase. Piano stool-related jokes plagued the rest of the production from that point forward. We were due at In Your Ear for 8 p.m., their closing time, and it was only 6.30 p.m., so some folks went to a restaurant while Aaron, Mike Morris, and I went to a choose-your-own topping frozen yogurt place, where I reviewed and transferred all the footage. When done, we packed into my car and headed to In Your Ear Music on Commonwealth Ave. With Kyle, JR, Hanna, and John Hunt all packed in, we became the Griswolds again, and I really couldn't take it. So I blasted radio static over the noise of the car at full volume until we arrived at the store. It left everyone a little soured on me. We stood outside the store waiting for it to close. Kyle's girlfriend and friend of the production, Molly Coombs, showed up to play an ironic hipster in the store, who assumes Mark is wearing a thin Lizzie t-shirt to be ironic and funny. As we waited on the street, Kyle and I bickered, which developed into a more formal argument. After the first few hours on the first day, he had been getting increasingly snappy and short with me, expressing impatience when trying to solve problems. This was deterring me from working with him on issues, and instead I would look at his frame and make a judgment call. <sighs> Do I ask him to adjust it the way I want and deal with the grumpiness and communication breakdown sure to follow? Or is this good enough? I, I think it's good enough. When creating something that's going to last forever, complacency like that is deadly, and I knew he wouldn't want me to feel that way, so I spoke to him about it. He found me equally guilty of the same sort of thing, and neither of us could pin the other's claims down with any proof. Still, we committed to working on it. The little argument chased Hana and Molly away from the blast site. Hana later told me it was scary because I did that thing. What thing? Where you fold your arms, frown, listen very intently to the other person, and prepare to unleash a scary argument? I do that? We finally went to the store, which was pretty awesome. The ceiling was peeling, there were flyers for bands no one will ever see, and every square inch of the place was covered in cassettes, vinyls, and memorabilia. It was tough for me to squeeze between the aisles, and harder still for John Hunt and his piano stool. This location was approved by a night manager who didn't consult the owner. When I called during pre-production to confirm it, I did get the owner, who angrily repeated that if the night manager wants to stay late, that's his business, but he's certainly not going to. I'm tired of all these student films wanting to shoot in here. And aside from Jeff Torelli. A bit more about locations and writing. Did I have any idea we could shoot at Mr. Music and In Your Ear Records when I wrote the script? No. But they were the exact specific places I had in mind. I also knew if we couldn't, there were other music and record stores, and one had to eventually let us do it. These were among the most detailed locations in the script, which should tell you something. I didn't write anything into this script that I thought was going to be out of our reach. Some people say shoot for the moon, and that's certainly one way to go about it. But if your scene doesn't really have to take place in an aircraft carrier, maybe don't write that in. If you're a lean, low-to-no-budget team, keep that in the back of your head when you're writing. Conversely, if you know you have a shot at using a good location, put it in. The record store and music store look great in the movie because they're authentic. We couldn't have built better sets if we had the budget to do it. I knew people who knew people at Mr. Music, and instead of having the characters talk in a basement, I wrote in something visually interesting. 
One of the worst filmmakers to ever shoot in America was a man named Coleman Francis. This auteur was responsible for such celluloid tragedies as The Beast of Yucca Flats, The Skydivers, and Red Zone Cuba. I know because I own them all. Francis knew one thing, though, production value. He had a buddy who owned a small, single-engine airplane, and that airplane made it into all of his movies because it gave his film some production value. I'm not saying you should be forcing things into your script, but if your mom's best friend's daughter owns a restaurant... Maybe write one in, because that's a location you can probably use for free one night. If we had to actually rent all the music equipment and having fun up there, we would have been out a lot of money. But nearly everyone I know owns a ton of music gear, so there's production value without having to have a budget. Think about the things you have access to for cheap or for free, and keep that in mind when you're writing. I paid the night manager $30 to come out, on a night he wasn't on shift, and supervise us for about two hours while we shoot the scene. Jeff and Bonica had to leave early, but when they arrived, Jeff started kicking himself for not bringing the Grinch record. We searched the store for it, but they didn't have it. We expended a useless amount of disappointment over this, as John Denver and the Muppets Christmas served just as well. Better, perhaps, since Mark tells his nephew at the beginning of the film, The rock star is dead, man. Like, Jim Henson, or the Muppets, or some of the Muppets, I don't know, I don't really speak the whole kid thing. Hanna continued to lend a fun and funny tone to the proceedings, taking an odd amount of joy in clapping in her scenes, performing the claps like a mix between Vanna White and an orangutan. Molly nailed her character. Apparently she really struggled with the costume. I told her to just dress like a hipster, and she ultimately arrived in her normal attire, but different shoes. Her feet are not in the final edit, or any shot taken, for that matter. Our talk outside seemed to leave Kyle with a frustrated depression, as he didn't seem to know how to solve the problem beyond getting quieter, which read to me as indignance, which caused me to be frustrated. Six days left. Kyle and Hannah purchased records on the way out, and we called it a day.